0: The scripture reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated. But in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if suffering should be God's will than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, Dolores. Let me add my welcome to uh, Quinn's just a few moments ago, to all of you who are with us today, and especially to greet those of you who still feel like you're new among us. Uh, for those who are here for the first time today, or just uh, maybe the second or third visit, we are especially glad that you've continued to exercise the courage to walk into a place that feels new. We, uh, many of us know what that is like, uh, as I do. And so we wanna say welcome to you, and we're eager to get to know you, and, come alongside you as we seek to be faithful to Jesus Christ together. And to all of you who are joining us online, we are so glad that you've joined us here today. Whether you're a regular part of the congregation unable to join us in person, or those of you who are coming from some distance to be with us, it's a joy to welcome you in the name and the spirit of Jesus Christ. I was listening to Melanie and her uh, children's word this morning and I just have to confess to you all, you can all be my priests this morning. I got caught by the Girl Scouts yesterday. (laughs) My Lenten discipline about thin mints went out the window, I have to say. (laughs) But what does that have to do with Peter and prisons and spirits and Noah? Let's find out. There were five men, each of them carrying a gun. They stood between the pastor and the entrance to the sanctuary, pointing their rifles at his face. Their own faces were scarred with the distinctive tribal cuttings of the Kakwa tribe. They were dressed casually in flowered shirts, bell-bottom pants, they wore sunglasses. The pastor recognized them as being from the State Research Bureau which was the fancy name for Uganda's secret terrorist police. The tallest man among uh, the pastor's accusers spoke first. He said, we are going to kill you. If you have anything to say, you may say it now before you die. The pastor stared at him, feeling the full weight of the assassin's rage. They had never met, but he could recognize hate when he saw it. The pastor then surprised himself because he heard his own voice sounding as if it came from far away, speaking. He said, I do not need to plead my own cause. I am a dead man already. My life is dead and hidden in Christ. It is actually your lives that are in danger for you are dead in your sins. I will pray to God that after you have killed me, he will spare you from eternal destruction. Those words are paraphrased from the story of Pastor Kefa Simpangi. Some of you might know his story. A Ugandan pastor who survived the persecutions that took place in 1973 under the orders of Ugandan dictator Idi Amin. Recently, I've been hearing stories exactly like this, coming out of Ukraine, as Christians there are facing the invading Russian forces. I read accounts like this, or I hear accounts like this, and there are many, and I confess to you that I am filled with awe. How did he do that? How did he even get a word out? as those gunmen pointed their weapons at his head. And instead of pleading for his life, which is most certainly what I think I would have been doing, how did he have the presence of mind then to utter those striking and powerful lines, I am a dead man already, as if he were quoting Galatians 2.20. I will pray to God that he, after you have killed me, will spare you. I marvel at the pastor's example, and I can't help but wonder what I would have done if I had been in his place. How about you? Sampongi wasn't the first to face death because of his faith in Christ. Christians have known persecution since the day Jesus called the first disciples away from their nets and into a life of uncertainty and conflict. We know that Peter in his letter was writing to Christians who themselves, in Asia Minor, were going through severe persecution. And we've seen that Peter, back in chapter 2, encouraged those believers to live lives that would elicit praise from their pagan neighbors. Then he detailed some of the particular ways in which Christians might live toward that end. Masters and servants, husbands and wives, Indeed, all the believers were to live in harmony, compassion, and humility. And when they were treated unfairly, unjustly, or violently, they were to, res- to respond to evil with blessing. And then here, in the text that Dolores read for us just a moment ago, Peter asks, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Well, my immediate response i think the response of history and personal experience is lots of folks i had that lesson impressed upon me very early in life on the school bus which is when many of us have our first experience in power politics as a new kid on the block and on the bus i walked on the bus and there was only one seat left. There was a young girl behind me. And so I spoke to two guys. I asked them to scoot over so I could sit on the end of the seat. And so the young lady could have the seat behind me. It's the way that I was brought up. I thought I was just being polite. But I've never ever forgotten the teasing I took from those guys who refused to move over for me. And I shamefacedly took that last seat. Since then, I have agreed with the folk wisdom that insists no good deed goes unpunished. Peter, of course, wasn't naive. He himself had suffered a lot and he would suffer more. So he immediately addresses the probable outcome of doing what is right. He says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, still you are blessed. I believe the church in the West needs to pay particular attention to this. It has been too easy for us to link God's blessings to the good things of life, to material success and well being, to a good doctor's report, when in fact, the deeper truth that we encounter in the pages of Scripture and in the life of Jesus is quite different. There is a revolutionary view of suffering that we encounter in the pages of scripture and through the life of Jesus. Suffering is linked to blessing in a way that is hard for us to understand. But Peter realized that doing what was right was no guarantor of an easy life. Spite, envy, jealousy, revenge. These things and others conspire in the hearts and minds of people just like us. We are those people. An overlooked colleague who vows to get even. A sibling who believes that he has been treated unfairly by his parents his entire life. A Jack Nicholson-like neighbor who leers at you every time you walk out your door. He just happens to live next door to you. These people exist. We are, some of us, these people. How are we to live then in a world like this, so broken and so often cruel? Peter doesn't give us a detailed technique, a program, but he does give sound advice. And most pointedly, in verse 15, in your hearts, he says, set apart Jesus Christ as Lord. In your hearts, I think your translation in your bulletin says, sanctify Christ as Lord. I think that's fair enough to the Greek, but it doesn't have the punch. Set apart Jesus Christ as Lord. This line has had a powerful effect on me as I've read through this text. In your hearts, set apart Jesus Christ as Lord. I ask you simply, have you done this? Underneath all the church going, the Christian veneer, the offerings and tithes, the Sunday school classes, does this describe you? Have you in your heart set apart Jesus Christ as Lord? Notice this is quite a different question from do you believe that Jesus Christ died to save you from your sins? It's quite different because this is a question that goes to allegiance and loyalty. It speaks of submission and obedience. Of resolve. It is the intentional declaration of one's primary identity. I am in Christ. That is first and foremost who I am. I belong to Him. It is the resolve which lives in the heart of every Christian. And indeed, having set apart Christ as Lord answers a good many questions that would otherwise take up our time and our energy. Things that used to tempt us become less of an issue. Christ is now my Lord, and all of that light, all that life, all that comes to me through life, the good, the bad, the joys, the sorrows, I am trying to see through that lens. I belong to him. He lives in me. He rules over me. He died and lives for me. Martin Luther defined faith, not as intellectual belief, but as quote, a living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that the believer would stake his life on it a thousand times. Because of it, a person is ready and glad to do good to everyone, to serve everyone, to suffer everything out of love and praise to God. Faith as a living, daring confidence in God's grace. Friends, it doesn't answer every question that we may have about God, but it is the only place to begin one's journey with him. In your hearts, set apart Jesus Christ as Lord. Our lives are not driven by Gallup polls or the opinions of others. They are instead given their dynamic shape and commitment by this affirmation, that Christ alone is Lord of my life. We're not dependent upon the world to make life work for us. We owe it no debt except the debt of love. But we can only love if we have first been set free to love. And that happens as we set apart in our hearts Jesus Christ as Lord. We love not for any recompense or the promise of some reward, but only because we have been given new life, been raised from the grave ourselves and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So in grateful obedience to our Lord, we give away what we've been given. The love that he has shown to us will only rot if we do not steward it and give it away to others. That is why that Ugandan pastor could speak of God's love for his would-be assassins even at the moment of death. And that is why Peter can exhort his, <clears throat> his readers, us, to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in us. We never know when someone might encounter us with a threat or a challenge or an invitation to be ready, to be prepared, to give a reason for the hope that is in us. Greatly, gently, says Peter, with respect. And even to those who least deserve it, for they are the ones who most need to hear it. Because as God sent us, as sent Christ, so Christ sends us to be his voice, to be his outstretched hand, his embodied offer of forgiveness. And to do this, even when we've been treated unfairly. But what is that reason for the hope that is within us? On what grounds may we face our accusers? And they might not be external accusers, they might be the internal accusers of conscience or fear or doubt. How best can we face our accusers with confidence and certainty? Well, look at verse 18 in Peter's argument. What is the reason that he gives us? Christ died for the sins once for all, the righteous one for us, the unrighteous, to bring us to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. And he goes on to say in verse 21 that it is by Christ's resurrection and ascension that we have been saved, given new life. What is the reason for our hope? Peter asks, look at Jesus Christ. He gave his life for you the one righteous God-man for us, the many. He became like us in order that we might become like his Son, Jesus Christ. To bring us to God as our representative. He has done this through his resurrection and ascension. He has carried the weight of your sin and mine by his death. And in his resurrection, he has broken the power of sin and death That would otherwise leave us imprisoned. What has Jesus Christ done? You won't be surprised if I offer you a description taken from C.S. Lewis's little book called Miracles. There he likens what Jesus Christ has done to that of a celestial diver. One who stripped off his garments and made himself naked and then flashing for a moment through the bright air entered into the green warm sunlit waters of this world and he goes down deeper into the pitch-black cold freezing water but deeper still down into the mud and the slime and then up again striving for the surface. His lungs almost bursting up again through the green and warm and sunlit water. When at last he breaks the surface and comes into the bright sunshine, holding in his hand the dripping thing that he went down to get. And that dripping thing is human nature. That dripping thing is you and me. But then there is this weirdness in verse 19. Dolores and I were talking about this text before the service and she said, what is Peter thinking? Hope it's okay to quote you. It begins in verse 19. We're sailing along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Peter, tell me something I don't know. Okay. This verse has stumped commentators. Through whom that is through the Holy Spirit, Christ also went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. How did we get to Noah? This is why some people say, I don't really want to read the Bible. (laughs) In it only a few people, eight, and all were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Wow, you probably weren't prepared for this this morning when you got in your car to come to church, were you? Spirits in prison, Noah, baptism, what is it all about? Well, I'm not gonna take you down into the exegetical weeds. Some of you are sighing in relief. If you're interested in a more complete discussion, let's have it about what the possibilities are. But I think Peter's point, while difficult in its parts, to us, I I, I imagine his first readers understood everything that he meant by this. But Peter's point is actually clear enough to us in its implications. Not only did Christ die on the cross on our behalf, an atonement for our sin, not only was he raised from the dead, in a clear declaration of victory over the power of sin and death, he also is Lord over every spiritual power that is opposed to the purposes of God, even those powers that would keep the dead dead. Peter, like Paul, understands the cosmos as being populated by spiritual powers, what Peter here calls angels and authorities and powers and perhaps those mysterious spirits in prison in verse 19. Peter is telling us that in Christ's death and resurrection, he also has conquered those enemies of God. They too are in submission to Jesus Christ. Any and every challenger to the sovereign majesty of Christ has been defeated once for all. So just as Noah was brought safely through the floodwaters of trial and suffering, so our baptism is the pledge of God's faithfulness to see us through all the challenges that would come our way. He has overcome every rival, every idol, every obstacle, and he has done this by his death resurrection, and ascension to the Father, where he sits today, Lord of all. And that's what Peter means when he exhorts us to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. The would-be assassin took a step toward the Ugandan pastor, and he stopped. His face had changed. His hatred had seemed to be transformed into a kind of curiosity. He lowered his gun and he motioned for his four colleagues to lower their guns as well. And then he turned to the pastor and he said, will you pray for us? Yes, said the pastor. And then wisely he said, would you please bow your heads and close your eyes? He assumed that this was a trick, that his life would end as soon as he bowed his head and closed his eyes, but he prayed with his eyes open. Every good pastor knows that this is an important thing to do, <laughs> you never know. He prayed that God would forgive the men, and that they, wouldn't, that they would not perish in their sin. The leader spoke again, you have helped us and we will help you. Do not fear for your life. It is in our hands and you will be protected. Well, that prayer began a process of conversion in that man's life that led him to repentance and life in Christ. And all five men ended up as believers in that pastor's congregation. Which, which are the five here? Just It's good to know who you are. It was a congregation that had buried many of its people due to the atrocities under Idi Amin's reign but that congregation was thriving and I think I understand why it was filled with people who had resolved to set apart Christ as Lord over every power that could threaten them in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. We don't have accusers who are likely to shove guns in our faces, but we do have our accusers, don't we? Colleagues, perhaps family members who do not yet see the truth and the beauty of what's possible because of Jesus Christ. We live in a culture of sophisticated despisers who find it easier to to ridicule and slander And then we have our own internal accusers, don't we? Those doubts and fears that raise their heads in the dark of night, or when we are sitting beside a loved one in the hospital, or when we are reaching out to a child who has gone astray and no longer wants anything to do with the parents, or when a marriage is contentious and threatened, or when shame refuses to let us live in truth with our failures, to live in hope with our failures. And every one of us, every single one of us, will one day face our own end. In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. And what better moment to do this than as you make your way to this table where the Lord asks you once again to trust him. our triumphant Christ will see us through. And we, hopeful ones, can invite others, even our enemies, to know him as well. Should we pray about this? Take this moment to take him at his invitation, whether you have followed him for years or whether you are sitting here wondering if it's possible that it could be true. Set apart Jesus Christ in your hearts as Lord. There is no one in whose service you will find a greater grace and greater fulfillment. How grateful we are, Lord, that before we were born, you have acted on our behalf to overcome every power that would keep this creation and us in bondage. You have overcome it through your own gracious act of love, sending your son, Jesus Christ, a diver into the mud and slime of this broken world and emerging again, holding us, holding us. We thank you. We worship you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.